Today's reading is Mark chapter 3, and we find a lot going on here. Some things we've talked about already before when we read through the Gospel of Matthew. That's the beauty of these synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, They tell us these things over and over again because it's important that we think about them over and over again. But here in in Mark chapter 3, we find Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and scribes and with the crowds and with his chosen twelve disciples, and uh, even with his own family. So let's uh, think about some things we find in this chapter. And I guess I'll start with this, and that is, in this chapter early on, we find what, what you might call the tried and true method of creating strife or trouble. The tried and true method of creating trouble and strife. So the chapter opens again with um, the sinful plotting of the Pharisees. And the bottom line is, you don't have to read the scriptures very long to see this, but the, the Pharisees just didn't like Jesus. <laughs> and they were going to do all that they could to create enough strife, enough turmoil, enough trouble, as the passage puts it to, as verse 6 says, to destroy him. And to accomplish this, Mark highlights their method, which is a tried and true one. Step one, watch the person with a hypercritical eye toward their every action. That's made plain in verse 2. It says in verse 2, And they, that is the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them, heal him on the Sabbath. So they already had their minds made up against him, and they purposefully watched Jesus so that at the first opportunity they could make a move, which leads to step 2. The moment you see the person do something you can criticize or you feel that you can criticize, you talk about it with other people. That's called gossip and slander. That's made plain in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So there is the tried and true method of creating strife and turmoil. Watch and talk. Step one, watch. Step two, talk. That was the plan of the Pharisees. They watched Jesus with a hypercritical eye, and they talked about Jesus with ill intent, and it worked. It created enough strife to kill Jesus, though in the sovereign providence of God, their plan, as we've talked about before, accomplished precisely the opposite of what they intended. God used for good what they intended for evil, But the method of the Pharisees is still carried out by people today. They watch people watch people, and then people talk about people with all with ill intent. And unless the 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 sovereign Lord um, intervenes to stop it, strife will ensue. James said the tongue quote in James three eight is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And it's why the Proverbs. Book of Proverbs says in Proverbs ten nineteen, when words are many, sin is not lacking. Of course, knowing that this is a tried and true method of creating strife and conflict, Jesus said in Matthew seven three, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And he furthermore said in Matthew twelve, verse thirty seven, By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Therefore, the book of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, counsels us to let our words be few. And Paul commands 
in Colossians 4, 6, that our speech should always be gracious. So in light of this, it's not inherently wrong to watch and talk, provided you are watching in order to encourage and you are talking in order to praise. But see, that's, that's seldom the case. And only you know if that's the case with you, and only I know if that's the case with me. This is the very sin, as we will see, that both angered and grieved the Lord. As we see the specks in others, let's be mindful of our own logs. And as we're tempted to talk, let's be intentional that our words are words of grace and not gossip. Another thing we see um, is uh, sin that both angers and grieves the Lord. When Jesus sees the actions of the Pharisees toward, uh, toward his intention to heal the man with a withered hand, we read that Jesus, in verse 5, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. That's, that's instructive for us in knowing the response of the Lord towards sin. Sometimes we err on one side of the spectrum to the neglect of the other. In other words, sometimes we stress only that our sin grieves God, and while that highlights the love of patience of God, it forgets and minimizes the holiness and justice of God. At other times, we stress that sin angers the Lord, which gives rightful place to his holiness and justice, but it may also neglect and overlook his love and patience. We need to keep both in balance. The Lord, we're told, is both angered and grieved at sin. It grieves him because of his love toward us, but he's angered because of his holiness and justice. Jesus said in John 14, 9, that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Therefore, if this is how Jesus reacted toward the sin of the Pharisees, we can be sure that it's how God the Father reacts toward our sin. Here's a third thing we see, and that is focusing on a few. And just a quick note I want you to see in this chapter. One thing that is stressed again and again are the immense crowds that constantly surrounded Jesus. At one point, the crowd was so uh, pressing, we see in verse 9, they felt the crowd might crush Jesus. Um, well, after a brief interlude, it says in verse 20 that after Jesus went home, the crowds gathered again, so much so that he couldn't finish his meal and had to go outside. Of particular note, however, is in between the accounts of the crowds, verses 13 through 19 uh, highlight Jesus choosing and appointing just 12 men to be his close disciples. These would receive his special attention and his intentional teaching and discipling. And that's also a lesson for us. If we want to be fruitful for the kingdom, find a small handful of people that you can pour your life into in an intentional way so that they can then go out and do the same with others. See that in the Great Commission and in 2 Timothy 2, 2, for example. Uh, Another thing that we find here that we've talked about back in Matthew's Gospel as well, and that is the talk of an eternal, unforgivable sin. Um, So Mark records for us uh, Jesus speaking to the scribes about a a kind of sin. uh, Verses 22 through 30 um, Uh, about a kind of sin that's unforgivable. So what can we say about it? Well, two things appear notable to me. One, the sin appears to be not just a one-time thing, but a persistent thing, a persistent thing. In verse 22, we read 
uh, quote, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, uh, dot, 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 <laughs> not to bore you with Greek grammar unnecessarily, but the Greek word translated were saying uh, is in the imperfect tense, which denotes uh, an ongoing action in the past, um, in contrast to an action done one time in the past. In other words, he was saying versus he said. So to me, it appears that these scribes were persistently, on an ongoing basis, making serious sinful comments about the Lord. That's one notable aspect of the unforgivable sin. It appears to be a sin committed persistently. And the other observation about it is that it seems to be a resolute rejection of who Jesus is and ascribing to Satan the work of God. That's what the scribes did. They saw what Jesus was doing in the power of the Holy Spirit and specifically said Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul and he was doing his works, quote, by the prince of demons, verse 22. Now that, that, that doesn't appear to be mere unbelief because mere unbelief can be forgiven through repentance and faith. It's more persistent, willful, uh, uh, persistent and willful assessment that the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is satanic. And Jesus calls that an eternal sin, verse 29 one with eternal consequences, just as a word of comfort and hope. If you're trusting right now in Jesus Christ as true God and as your only Savior from sin, you can rest assured that you have not committed the unpardonable sin. One final thing very quickly, uh, blood kinship and gospel kinship, blood kinship and gospel kinship. At the end of this chapter, Jesus' mother and brothers sent word to Jesus to come back inside with him uh, them away from the crowd, verses 31 and 32. And Jesus made what perhaps to some is a surprising statement. He responded to his earthly family's request by saying in verse 34, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Two, two simple truths we can draw from this statement. One, our spiritual relationship to one another as believers is just as real and just as certain as our physical relation to our earthly family. You are no more certainly related to your brothers and sisters by blood than you are related to your brothers and sisters in Christ by the Spirit and by faith. Secondly, um, our relation to one another in Christ will never come to an end, unlike our earthly family relations. Our spiritual relations through Christ are actually more real and more lasting than any other earthly relationships we have. And so therefore, without neglecting our earthly families at all, we should understand the significance of our eternal kinship in the gospel and seek to make those relationships more eternally meaningful and beneficial. In other words, understand the value of the church and give yourself, your time, and your gifts fully to them. And that is Mark chapter 3.